You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Carlos Ponce. He's an assistant professor at Washington University, St. Louis. And we're going to be talking about uh, how uh, he's used AI to better understand biological vision, you know, how creatures such as us see. So, Carlos, thanks for coming. Hello. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's weird. You know, I, I'm looking around, I'm seeing things, but I guess I don't, I never thought about the um, physiological uh, happenings of what it means to see and all the things that are involved. So, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, take me through what, what got you interested in understanding how creatures and people see in the first place. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the most fascinating questions uh, I have encountered in my life. This is the, uh, the idea that, you know, as we experience the world, we see a world that is intact. We see colors combined with shapes and uh, you know, everything seems like a nice whole. And one of the things that I started to uh, to realize when I started to study about the brain was the, uh, the idea that, in fact, all of this comes together from a number of cells, neither of which is conscious, interacting with one another, just talking to each other through basic signals. And that creates somehow our consciousness of vision. And that, to me, was the most interesting question uh, in college, and that's how I decided to pursue it uh, as, a, as a physician scientist. So what's, um, you know, what, well, what's a common person's uh, assessment of how they see things, and what have you discovered as you know, some of the underlying mechanisms of what goes on when we see things? Well, one of the, uh, you know, there's certainly um, about 50 or 60 years at least of work in, here in, in vision. And so, it's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big question. I suppose one of the things that I could say about it is that um, the way that we can think about vision is in a way that, uh, that the machine learning community has also begun to analyze it. So when, uh, even though we experience the world as an intact whole, our brain is divided into a hierarchy of visual areas, that is, uh, groups of neurons. Uh, the earliest ones, you know, as soon as we get image, an image into the retina, these cells in the, in, the, in the posterior part of your brain, if you touch the back of your head, there you'll, you'll be touching the, uh, an area called the occipital lobe. There, uh, 
it contains cells that respond to very basic uh, kinds of information like oriented lines and like little dots. And that, so they respond to a very small part of the, of the visual field. But then as you see what these cells are talking to, the next cells that are listening to this initial cells, they begin to respond to slightly more complex things like corners and curvature and so on. These cells then begin to project to other cells that now begin to respond more to textures until finally you end up with a set of cells in a part of the brain called infratemporal cortex by your ear. Those cells now respond to pictures of uh, faces or hands or places or body parts. They, uh, in a way, start to behave a little bit like our conscious uh, perception. Uh, they're not exactly conscious, these cells, but they respond to very complex things. And that problem of trying to understand what individual cells along this hierarchical pathway are encoding for is what led us to the use of machine learning uh, to, to answer this question. So again, what's, what's the pathway? Um, photons hit my eye, they, they, I guess they hit the retina. Would have, you know, if you, maybe you could tell me in stages like what happens with the light that's coming into my eyes, maybe step by step. Wow. Yeah, so we can we can think of it in about maybe five or six different stages. Uh, first, the light hits the retina. All the information about the visual scene is in the retina, but those cells are mostly responding to points of light. Uh, then from there, it goes to the lateral geniculate nucleus uh, in the center, in the, the base of the brain. And those cells now begin to respond to slightly larger uh, groups of, of larger dots and uh, centers around information. Then from, from there, it goes to uh, primary visual cortex, or what we call V1. And those are the cells that will respond to oriented lines and to specific uh, corners, for example. Uh, and then from there, it gets really easy because what follows is it goes from V1, primary visual cortex, to V2, V3, V4. And those are the cells that now begin to respond to more and more sophisticated shapes until finally it hits inferotemporal cortex, which is pretty much the last uh, exclusively visual part of the brain. And those are the cells that respond to complex, uh, very complex things, like the, even the identity of a person that you're looking at. Uh, then those cells begin to project their information to other parts of the brain concerned with memory, for example, the hippocampus, or to uh, active working memory, like the prefrontal cortex. And those are the cells that I think we could identify as being more related to your actual thoughts, uh, things that you're keeping in mind as we speak, for example. Right, so it, this sounds like how AI would work. I guess AI looks at the um, the individual photons. I mean, well, well, forget about that for now. But so our brain looks at the individual photons, uh, looks at the pattern of them. Then it goes maybe to a next level of processing, and it says, "All right, this pattern is a circle or a line, or this looks like a shaded, I don't know, area." Then it steps up again in a level of understanding and says, "All right, this, these lines and this shaded area represents this, you know, a dog. And then maybe it goes up another level and then processes what kind of a dog. I mean, is that yeah. maybe how the brain works? Or? Yeah, pretty much. But here's what's interesting about what's different between neural networks. As you've described them, that's, that's perfectly right. All of the hidden units in, the, in these layers of a, of a neural network begin to respond to more and more complex uh, shapes as well. But here's what's interesting. If you take these models of convolutional neural networks, uh, as they're called, um, the way that they're taught, the way that they're trained, is that folks will pick 
you know, the different categories of visual images, and then we'll use gradient descent uh, backpropagation to to then correct the neural network when it misclassifies an object uh, according to its basic category. But that's called supervised learning, and it works really well. But think about the way that the brain learns. When we are babies, we begin to look at the world and we see objects, but we don't really have somebody telling us every time that we, you know, we look at a chair and we think that it's a cat. We don't have like somebody, an inner voice saying, no, 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 that's a cat. It is, in fact, the learning is much more unsupervised. Somehow the brain must learn to abstract important categories or important shapes from the world in a way that isn't being guided like, you know, a, a, a machine learning scientist would do. So this creates the biggest problem in trying to understand the brain and from my perspective. And that is when you find a cell that is, you know, you, you, you can insert an electrode in the brain and listen to the responses to the elect electrical activity emitted by a given cell when you present multiple pictures. But what pictures should we be showing this cell? And that's a really hard problem because, as you know, uh, the number of potential images we could show is practically infinite. And for 50 years, this has been a big, a big problem in neuroscience because uh, even though a lot of us will try to come up with pictures that fit our intuition, for example, faces surely is something we see in the environment, so let's pick pictures of faces. Or, you know, we look at our hands, so we'll select pictures of hands. But what if these neurons are in fact much more general. Maybe they don't really care about categories in the same way in which we define them. Uh, maybe they care more about tokens or, or small motifs, small like patches of information for which we have no name. And so uh, how, do we, how do we query, how do we find out what we have missed over the past few decades uh, about what cells might be encoding in the world? And that's uh, when machine learning can really help us. If you consider that, you know, you said vision maybe includes five or six levels of processing. So what levels have we been able to emulate with AI and to what degree of success? And is there a level or a layer that that's where the loss is that we just can't get past for them? I see. Uh, that's a great question. So um, that's an interesting question in that uh, there's been some work that has been done by various scientists in the field, including uh, James DiCarlo of MIT and Nicholas Griggs-Corte and others, uh, where they've tried to understand how uh, information encoded at individual layers of a convolutional neural network can serve to fit the responses of actual neurons in the brain. And the overall finding has been that, as you can imagine, the, the deeper the layer in a convolutional neural network, the more useful that layer is in trying to explain the responses of deeper parts of the brain, like uh, the areas like in V4 or inferotemporal cortex. So overall, there is that nice correspondence that in convolutional neural networks, the early areas encode for simpler features, just like in the brain. The earlier areas, like V1, those are closer to retina, will also encode closer, uh, you know, more low-level features. Um, how specifically one layer maps to one area of the brain is harder to assess. And there's a, that's actually an active area of research in trying to understand the representations, uh, not just between the brain and neural networks, but between different kinds of neural networks. As you know, there are uh, 
great diversity now of different kinds of architectures, including uh, you know the classic AlexNet or the ResNets, uh, DenseNets, others that uh, that have uh, certain architectural features that make them work even better and allow them to be deeper uh, for better classification accuracy. So, um, you know, I, was, of these... I was just thinking about the learning that we do. I think we do do a lot of supervised learning visually. Like, let's say I'm a new radiograph tech and I have to read, like, you know, images of lungs that may or may not have cancer. I mean, that's like an example of I, I need some supervised learning. I don't know what I'm looking at. And I literally don't see features. You know, it is, I, I've had the experience, for instance, of when I've been trained to look at something versus not, I literally see something different. That I didn't see before. And I've had the experience many times that I literally didn't see something that was there before. I just didn't process it. So I would think that we yes. do do a lot of supervised visual yes. learning. Yes, absolutely, and we do. And we should make, uh, you know, obviously, if, even in my example, when I explained uh, that a baby, for example, is not told every time what they're what what they're looking at, what she or he is looking at, uh, but eventually the baby grows up, and yes, absolutely, there's. A lot of ways to um, to then use active information in in uh, in our brain to then try and train our visual system. I actually spent some time in a, in a pathology residency, and there, uh, you know, and there the job of the of the trainee is to look at tissue patterns and to be able to recognize them and assign them uh, diagnosis. So that to me was a very clear example of how we use supervised learning, very very intense supervised learning to develop new skills using our visual system. Um, but that comes later, and that's a sort of a process that takes longer. Uh, my daughter was just born two uh, a month ago, and I've seen uh, the way that she's beginning to recognize objects, specifically my face. That takes a long time um, in terms of you know how, how things could happen at the level of computers. And she doesn't understand language. She's not responding to any specific information. I tell her about what to see, something that is happening in a more unsupervised way. Um, so I think it's a combination of both. Uh, supervised comes later. But uh, I think that real, true discovery, the thing that would revolutionize neuroscience and, and machine learning, I think, is to understand what kind of unsupervised mechanisms can give rise to the proficiencies that we see in the visual system of the of the primate. The machine vision systems, uh, how good are they? Where do they lack? And is the um, is the lack of you know accurate enough machine vision? Does it have a common theme, or are there like yes. different manifestations of how machines cannot yet see how we see? Yeah, no, that that's a, that's a, a very exciting question. So over the past few years. These machine learning, these convolutional neural networks have become more and more impressive. And by some metrics, they have actually achieved superhuman capabilities where they can actually beat humans in recognition under very limited tasks. Um, so the biggest problem with them is that they don't generalize very well. So the visual system, as we understand it in, in, in ourselves and in monkeys and, and other species, can generally transfer well across domains. So if you, you can teach this particular brain to recognize faces or recognize objects, and then you can create a new set of stimuli that it's never seen before. And this was some done some work done by a 
Nikos Logothetis over the over the 90s and to early 2000s, you can create visual stimuli that are not part of the real world, and the brain will very easily uh, learn to represent them and allow an animal or human or other or, or an animal or other animals like humans to uh, use that information and make judgment calls on that pretty pretty easily. Neural networks, as as those of us who use them. Um, don't really have that ability. They break down or, or their accuracy drops if we add any kind of out of out of training samples. So that's one issue. The other issue is that they don't really respond to noise so well. So if we take an, an, an object and we cover it uh, using partial occlusion or other kind of so-called nuisance changes, we make it too small or we change the lighting, the uh, visual brain is very good at you know, adapting to those changes and still allowing neurons to detect uh, their preferred stimulus. Uh, and and uh, in comparison, machine learning models just don't do as well with nuisance changes as well. And then finally, the visual brain, we think, learns very quickly. Um, there's the idea of the one-shot learning where you can, you know, with one or two examples, you can teach a whole new category of visual objects. And uh, my understanding is that machine learning models just don't have that ability. They take a lot of training, a lot of uh, a lot of supervised training for them to do what they can do. So those are three areas where we think, uh, uh, certainly those of us in neuroscience are hoping that the machine learning community can develop models that are more and more like the brain. So what of the, um, the most successful machine vision models, what kinds of things are they able to uh, discern and with what accuracy? Ah, well, that's a good question. Um, the um, certainly the ones that are, that always come to mind are the ones that are winning the competitions, like ImageNet, beginning in 2012 with AlexNet, and then everything that's followed since, including uh, the residual networks, ResNets. Um, those are, uh, and I believe that their accuracy that they have at this point. I know that AlexNet was at 20% uh, error rate on uh, top five. Uh, and I believe that's been dropping. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's under 10% or 5% uh, at this point. Um, the interesting thing about the models that have become more and more successful, uh, they also have features that we identify in the brain. For example, their residual networks are also similar to AlexNet in that they process, and like the brain, in that they, they process information in a sequential way. But they also have this so-called bypass pathways, which is basically the, the idea that if you take like a, a neuron in area in V1, uh, most of them will project to V2, but some will project to V3. So they bypass their information and they kind of skip it along the hierarchy. And some of the better models now of visual recognition, they can they also possess this ability. They have the bypass pathways that, that propagate information in skip stages. Um, how that, why the brain uses that particular motif, that architectural motif, is not yet clear. It's an exciting area of investigation. We know that for machine learning models, it serves to facilitate training. Um, it, it makes it so that the gradient doesn't vanish. Um, Maybe it's for computational efficiency in the brain, the skipping. Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, it certainly could be that. It, it's... Um, there's a number of hypotheses, including the idea that, for example, if you have an area that has uh, cells that prefer simpler shapes, it'll serve to, if it's a useful shape, then you can propagate it forward to 
a neuron that wants to combine more sophisticated features with simpler features. That's that's certainly one one another reason why they think that could be useful. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, what what this uh, to answer the the other part of your question, what this uh, what this models can do is so far is identify categories of of objects. Um, for example, cars versus different species, you know, species of, of animals, a lot of dogs. A lot of that is based on um, sort of an ad hoc, although maybe there's a good theoretical reason that has eluded me, but um, categories that, that folks have put together to try and train these networks. Um, and it's a good question whether the categories that are being used to train convolutional neural networks are in a way the same ones that we would need to train models that better reflect the brain. So we know that the brain, for example, cares much more about faces than the training sets used for convolutional neural networks would uh, would reflect. I think that's something else that we need to pay attention to as we try to gap or close the gap between uh, machine learning models and the brain. Do you think that, um, you know, we can only see so much detail um, I've, I've seen an example, for instance, of this lady that's what's called a tetrachromat. Supposedly, oh, yeah. she has like uh, a lot more receptors in her eyes for colors, so she could see colors that people can't see. You know, she could see like yeah. millions of colors, and we can only see a million or something. So, is there a way to figure out if the machines are seeing things that people normally wouldn't see? Maybe we're losing that information, or maybe that information is obscuring the result we're trying to get because we only see at a certain fidelity level. And they may be seeing at a higher level. And again, these other features that they're seeing that we don't see, maybe that's confounding their learning. Yeah, that uh, the idea of trying to understand what these neural networks see uh, relative to what we see is is the the, the most important question, I think, um, because that that really takes us to the idea of of interpretability of machine learning um, or of artificial intelligence, which is what we've been pursuing in neuroscience for a long time. And there are interesting differences. Uh, for example, there's the finding, um, and Jeff Kloon was one of the investigators in this paper, showing that uh, neural networks appear to be fooled. If you take, for example, a picture of a bus, uh, to you and to me, it looks like a picture of a bus. But uh, you can also then, uh, using uh, backpropagation, gradient descent, find a set of pixel changes, imperceptible to my eye or to yours, that you can very, you know, subtly superimpose on that picture of the bus. And that neural network will now say, well, this is an ostrich, clearly. And when that paper uh, was published, a lot of us said, wow, okay, so there is something fundamentally alien a difference between these neural networks and, and us. Um, now, the story has become a lot more complicated because others have shown that maybe that's because neural networks are much more sensitive. They have, uh, you know, they have a, uh, an ability to detect patterns that we lack. Um, and there's also the idea that maybe we could also be equally fooled if somebody was able to examine our brains in detail and you know, take all our individual neurons in such a way we're just kind of moving the response of this neuron just in this way and then just another neuron that way would also make us hallucinate things. Um, there's been some interesting psychophysical work suggesting that that, that could be, in fact, the, the case. Um, 
And here I'm thinking about one study where you can take some of that noise that fools a neural network and then superimpose it on a natural picture and then show it to a human for a very, very brief period of time so that there's not mm. enough time for the person to study it. And, and, and indeed, uh, humans can then be fooled to, uh, you know, to a certain small effect size, but it's statistically significant that, you know, we will get fooled by adding some of this noise as well. So the whole picture is how are, how are these neural networks then uh, behaving relative to the brain? And certainly we think that they're not Exactly. We're, we're studying like an Android cousin. Uh, you know, it's not exactly, these are not models of the brain just yet, but we think that they can, they can be pushed in that direction. We certainly think that the human brain, the primate brain, is just a form of a neural network. Uh, and it's just a very big hyperparameter space uh, to define these neural networks, but we think that it's, we're in that neighborhood. How many um, receptors do we have in the average eye? And have we gone beyond that with uh, the number of receptors in a, in a you know, machine vision application? You know, that's a good question. Um, off the top of my head, I can't quite remember what the resolution is. You know, the equivalent of the resolution would be for the retina. I think I know that some species have about a million. We probably are dealing with a hundred, over a hundred million uh, receptors. Um, it's a little, it's a tricky question to understand how that translates to resolution, however. Like, for example, it has been shown that humans have the ability to distinguish uh, or to, to discriminate between points that are closer than actual sp the, the actual spacing of this, uh, of this retinal sensors. So uh, it's a hyperacuity uh, response that uh, kind of shows that somehow the brain is taking, is not limited by this intrinsic anatomical resolution. I'm not sure that neural networks can do that, but uh, that, that, that is at least one, one potential way to address what you've, what you've asked. Yeah, there's a lot of mysteries, it's very weird. It's a very exciting field because of that, yeah. Uh, I think we've done some, you know, the field has done some amazing strides in, in trying to come up with discoveries, but every discovery raises <laughs> a lot of fascinating questions in my in my opinion. So uh, it's, it's a good field to study, especially now that machine learning has been making such great improvements. Well, instead of trying to, um, since, since the intelligence of machine learning is probably fundamentally different than human intelligence, why not do things such as um, when you're training machine learning on, you know, on something, why not include infrared? Why not include UV? Why not include other parts of the spectrum that maybe are needed for that particular type of intelligence to process at the level that we process? Yeah. Yeah. What, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I certainly know that, um, you know, many of the neural networks or many of the uh, the kind of technology that is being built into self-driving cars does include things like uh, information from lasers, LIDAR, and, thing, you know, other kinds of sensory inputs that we ourselves don't have. Um, I would imagine, though, that it would be difficult. I mean, certainly uh, it's possible to use different kinds of sensors, yeah, from infrared and, and ultraviolet, but certainly for the kind of uh, visual models for, on which I, I understand a little bit more. Uh, most certainly, our our brains uh, through evolution have already adapted to basically extract most of the information out there in the visible world. Um, so, in terms of being able to de to determine shape uh, and other kinds of information related to that modality, we are pretty optimal in the, in that way. 
certainly we know that bees and, and mice can also see light um, slightly different frequencies. Um, but for the most part, you know, we wouldn't expect that uh, neural networks would show a, a much greater improvement at, at this task, for example. Um, but, you know, know, even if know we... That's a, that's a mistake because, I mean, again, you know, we don't need to see UV, but bees do. Without, you know, without, the, without them doing that, they can't live. And then, you know, uh, other creatures may, you know, sense the infrared. So, again, if we yeah. treat the AI not as a... Uh, artificial intelligence, but just as a different type of intelligence, a machine intelligence, yeah. why not add those yeah. things in? Because maybe that's what it needs in order to process properly. I think it's possible. It, it, it'll depend on the task. Like if, we're, if you're trying to come up with a neural network that must be able to, you know, examine flowers and and be able to tell the difference in color, or uh, then I think for sure it'll help to add some of this extra you know, or, you know, additional sensory inputs. Um, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, but it depends what you're trying to do. Certainly for, like, recognition of, of faces or cars, uh, you know, there may be some other kinds of inputs that we should be able to, that, that would aid in that task. But, yeah, it's um, certainly there's no theoretical reason why we couldn't add more, more information and get a better decision. But, yeah. Yeah, maybe there's certain uh, subsets of even the visible spectrum that need to be amplified. You know, they need, the uh, the machine needs to see in higher fidelity within this narrow range, you know, even of the visual uh, spectrum in order to be able to carry out its task and become more efficient. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Although you can see how that would really complicate, like, you know, at least for those of us who are in the business of trying to understand the system from the inside. It, this reminds me a little bit of the, the classic essay, you know, what is it like to be a bat? The idea of you have here you have a species that uses echolocation to navigate its world. And the, the writer invites you to think about what it's like to experience the world in such a way. And uh, it's actually pretty hard, <laughs> as you can imagine. So uh, for those of us who are trying to understand, say, convolutional neural networks and whether they see the same way that we see, to add these extra, you know, these extra features would probably complicate, uh, you know, our, our mission, even though, yeah, it would increase accuracy, would increase uh, applicability. Um, and But that is something that is already a tension in machine learning. And neuroscience, which really is about on, about the whys, um, a lot of the research that we do has no clear immediate application, but it's necessary in order to develop applications. And uh, in machine learning, there's a lot of emphasis on getting a good performance, a good product to scale up and to help biotech companies and other kinds of uh, to companies achieve their goals. Their, um, but I think there's a trade-off. Sometimes in pursuing accuracy, uh, you, we, we miss the, uh, the understanding of why. And, and that's why a lot of us are trying to really sink in, you know, sink our, our fingers into some of the models that are still interpretable and to try to see how we can uh, make these models interpretable as a way to understand the brain as well. Yeah. Hmm. It's, a, it's a mystery. So what, what's, a, what's your current specific focus right now? And what are you hoping to accomplish in the next... You know, a couple of years. Well, uh, as uh, certainly my current focus right now is I'm one of the batch of neuroscientists who found who have found a lot of uh, potential 
in using some of the techniques developed in machine learning to try and understand the brain. And so, as I mentioned earlier, one of the big mysteries that we're currently pursuing is to understand when we detect a cell in the brain that will respond to visual stimuli. The question is, what is the visual stimuli that we should use? And for the last 50 years, we've been, we've all, the field of neuroscience has been mostly doing the same thing, which is we use our intuition to pick a set of images, and then we show them to the cell, and then we let the cell vote through its action potential firing rates, um, which of the pictures it likes more. And that works, that has worked really well. It has given us a lot of understanding about the brain, but um, it's always possible that maybe we missed a different kind of visual feature that we couldn't even think about that the cells would have responded to the most. And that would, and that's, that would be the true uh, understanding of what a cell really is encoding. Right? Is it semantic, meaning is it, does it correspond to a colloquial category like faces, or is it something that we have never put a word to? So recently, we decided to try and explore this problem by using generative adversarial networks. And as you know, these are networks that uh, serve to try and model complex distributions. So a lot of them can be trained to learn what's important about a face and to give rise to new examples of faces that uh, corresponded to people that aren't real. So you can, and that's the, of course, the basis for a lot of this uh, deep fake, so-called deep fake uh, images and movies yeah. that you see sometimes. So we thought, all right. So given that some of these neural, these uh, generative networks are so sophisticated at mimicking and encoding versions of the visual world, we thought. Why can't we use these generative adversarial networks to try and see if a neuron could lead the development, the development of, of images uh, through that generative adversarial network? And so instead of picking images for the neuron to see, we'll just let the neuron take a bunch of nonsensical you know, textures and give rise to the image that it wants to see in the world. Um, and and this combined. Do you, uh, mm -hmm. you, you mean you're asking? Have we have we used a, a machine vision application to not only take in the information and process it, but output what it sees mm -hmm. in picture format? Is that yeah, what you're talking no. about? Yeah, exactly. Think of a cell as being defined both in a neural network and in the brain. I mean, in the brain they have a body, but what makes them work is the fact that they have inputs coming from other cells, and those inputs have a fixed weight. So this cell is encoding in its weights some aspect of the world, some shape or some color, some something secret. Uh, and in convolutional neural networks, you can understand what that is by using backpropagation and using the, the classic, for example, deep dream algorithm that uh, Google has made so famous. And that's because you have access to every weight in the neural network. But in the, in the brains of, of actual living creatures, we don't really have that control. So we have to right. find different ways of finding that mysterious shape or pattern that is hidden in the cell. And we decided to use generative adversarial networks in, combina in combination with an evolutionary algorithm, a genetic algorithm, uh, to find and extract that information hidden by the cell from scratch. Yeah, now I understand. I remember seeing pictures of... Um you know, faces or what a machine vision system thought a face was. And some of them were really close to reality and some of them are strangely distorted. And 
you see like the different levels or layers of the neural network and what the output is. I remember saying that, that's right. Yeah, there's been a lot of ways to to address this. Uh, we uh, we took a specific approach where uh, rather than using a convolutional neural network to try and model the brain and then poke at that at that neural network, we decided to just connect as as closely as possible the actual cells in an actual brain of a awake behaving primate and connect the outputs directly to a generative network. Um, in such a way that there's no middleman. The the cell is taking using this network to shape its own preferred feature. And what evolved was really surprising. I say evolved because we use a genetic algorithm, but what happened is that, uh, you know, I, and I was doing this, this work with uh, Will Chow in, in, in the laboratory of um, Margaret Livingstone. Uh, what we found was that these cells, you know, we imagine the scenario where it's these monkeys uh, we're doing this in, in non-human primates. They're just looking at a TV, looking at strange, weird patterns as the cell begins to respond to them. And then uh, those signals we fed back into a generative adversarial network. And what started mm-hmm. to happen is that these shapes at first were formless and looked like textures. And then suddenly uh, these cells began to give rise to shapes that were sort of reminiscent of things in the world, but not exactly of the world. For example, in one of these cases, we saw that uh, the shapes had like little two plots right next to each other, surrounded by sort of a convex border that looked to us like something was staring back. It looked like um, it looked like a face, and but it wasn't photorealistic. You understand? This was a um, a set of shapes that reminded us of a face. It almost looked like a cartoon. But yeah, well, a little bit like that, exactly. And so when we saw that, we thought, okay, well, this is a Rorschach test. We are just imagining things because we're primates and we like to see faces on things, right? So as we evolved these shapes, we didn't know, we, we were hesitant to interpret them. So one of the things that we decided to narrow this is we took some of these cells uh, that gave rise to these synthetic shapes, and then we showed them pictures from the natural world. And indeed, what we found is that the cells that created these face-like objects also responded well to actual pictures of faces. But here's what's important. The cells responded more to the synthetic image than to the actual pictures of the face, almost as if they had encoded a much more abstract, much more diagnostic essence of what the face was. Uh, And everything else in the world was sort of a cheap approximation to this particular pattern. Um, and so that started to, to tell us that the cells maybe were having a different language of their own. We think of the cells as encoding parts of pictures, like almost like little portions of photographs. But I think that they have a language of their own. They're really encoding exaggerations of low-level features, and our cognition arises from the interaction of this of of these uh, particular cells. Um, but you know, it's not as if we're thinking in photographs, I suppose, is one way that I would put it. Well, I just realized, you know, I was looking out on the road, I'm seeing cars go by and everything. And, um, you know, for instance, like driving, you don't see all the cars, you just kind of like, you know, you have, you have a reticular activating system. So certain things are in your field, certain things are just kind of there in the background, you know, they're there, but you don't know what they look like. Like I can tell you, for instance, like, if I'm driving, oh, there's cars in the oncoming lane, but 
I don't know what they look like. I can't tell you the colors or any the models, the makes or any of that, but I know they're there. Yeah. So yeah. are people that are creating machine vision systems, are they looking at context of an object? Because maybe that's missing. You know, if you want to look at a cat or a dog or a car, maybe you need the context, the situation it's in, in order to up the accuracy on what you're seeing. Yeah. So that is a, that is a key, isn't it? If we can... A lot of what, what I think defines our ability to to do so well in, in understanding the world is that we have context in, in many levels, one of which is, I think, common sense. Uh, and so to answer your question, our neural, uh, this is probably w- one of the things that is lacking the most in neural networks and in, in machine learning models is the idea of taking knowledge from the past and integrating it to shape the perception or, or, the, or the detection of objects. Um, in, in, in their actual sensory inputs. This, this is a, a, a key definition for how the human primate brain is thought to work. Um, having said that, I guess I should make some clarifications that in machine learning, you know, if you present a picture to a convolutional neural network and the picture contains a, a you know, picture of a dog uh, in a context, um, the neural network will learn associations. So, for example, if you're asking it to detect a dog versus a dolphin, it will probably be using the water as a clue. And in fact, it's been shown that if you subtract the actual shape corresponding to, say, like the dolphin or the dog, the, near, the neural networks will still do a good job at classifying things like dogs, even if the picture doesn't have a dog. So, um, so neural networks are smart at finding low-level associations, but they're still not good at being able to, uh, as you were pointing out earlier, taking uh, taking um, context and you know when when you are taught to see things differently, uh, when you you know you see like an ambiguous shape and suddenly somebody tells you, oh well that's a zebra. And clearly your brain clicks and goes, yes, of course, there is. That kind of recurrent process isn't yet well demonstrated in, in, uh, in machine learning models, as far as I can tell, at least from my perspective as a neuroscientist. Yeah, true. You know, like I, I thought about, um, you know, I'm not a designer, but I can tell you when something looks good. And mm. for the most part, uh, people will agree with me. You know, not that I have the greatest taste or anything, but... For some reason, like you and I and most people can look at something and be like, oh, that looks really good, but I can't tell you why. Or this person's really beautiful, but I can't tell you why. And I know there's been experiments to figure out, you know, what are the commonalities that, again, make someone appear beautiful or a design look good. So does that factor at all into machine vision or can it or is that like just too abstract? You know, that's interesting because that, in fact, is how a lot of the early efforts in machine vision began. So in humans, for example, speaking of beauty, it's been shown in in some studies that uh, symmetry appears to be a feature that is highly correlated in faces that we find attractive. So any kind of deviations from that, then we'll judge a face to be less attractive. Um, And so, of course, a lot of movie stars, a lot of actors and actresses will have... um, a little more symmetry than the rest of us. <laughs> um, and yeah. so the early efforts in machine vision were kind of, were trying to implement that. So like trying to create rules that said, all right, look, if you're a machine learning system, well, even at the time, not even learning, just a, 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 a artificial model, say, look for the feature of symmetry. And some of these handcrafted features just went by the wayside when machine learning started come to come to the fore. 
uh, now, none of those really are, you know, now that the neural network learns what it learns, and whether it has learned some of those basic principles is at the heart of of this uh, uh, interoperable AI movement. We don't know. I mean, maybe they, they learn some features like that. Um, certainly, I'm sure that if you took a neural network and then uh, did some very basic transfer learning to, to, for it to tell you degrees of, of symmetry, I'm sure you could do that. But whether it does one spontaneously, um, it's, it's harder to say. But uh, yeah, you've identified another interesting question to be answered. Well, I guess we're no further along than we were at the beginning of the conversation, but at least we understand some more of the, uh, the intricacies of it, of vision itself, so, which was the goal. Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as uh, it's often the case in science, a, a scientist has more questions than answers, but, um, but I can tell you that it's a, of all the fields in neuroscience, being at an intersection of machine learning and, and, and uh, biology is one of the most exciting places to be because ideas come from so many places that uh, it's certainly um, uh, an exciting time in, in visual neuroscience. Yeah. Awesome. So, Carlos, what's the best way for um, people to get in touch and to uh, you know to ask questions or see what you're doing, et cetera? What should they do? Uh, well, I think my, uh, my website at uh, PonceLab.org, P-O-N-C-E-L-A-B.org is probably the, the best way to contact me. I have a little bit of about my work, and I have my uh, my uh, my email there. So, um, you know, happy to happy to get to know folks. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Carlos, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40... I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.